confession. I absolutely love going to the movies. I love theaters. I love big screens. I love popcorn. If I See, that's what I was looking for. And if I were to take an even bigger step into vulnerability, I would tell you that I love Christmas movies. All of them. I love White Christmas. I love Miracle on 34th Street. I love Elf. I love Christmas Vacation. I love The Christmas Story. By the way, not all of those are appropriate and worth your watching. And this time of year, and I absolutely blame all of this on my wife, we watch a lot of Hallmark Christmas movies. In fact, it's fair to say that I've seen most of them. My wife started talking about a new one being released next Saturday. We both got giddy about DVRing it. They're cheesy. They're entirely predictable. But I love them. We love them. And if you pay attention to Christmas movies, if you watch them carefully, you'll see that they tend to break down into two pretty predictable plot lines. The first of which wraps itself, I'll call these the Hallmark movies, around cheesy, entirely predictable plots of perfect and unrealistic families. Situations where everything goes smoothly and everyone falls perfectly in love with a hot chocolate in their hand next to a Christmas tree. They are ideal. They are simplistic. Or they go the other way. They show you the completely broken, the falling apart families. Whether that takes you to a picture of Cousin Eddie or of Ralphie or of any other picture it brings to you. But it's easy to see why these two patterns exist, isn't it? Because as you consider Christmas movies, we often want to think of Christmas either from an idealistic, unachievable place or... We want to laugh at families that are more dysfunctional and outlandish and ridiculous than our own. (laughs) You and me both, brother. But from both perspectives, church, and I want us to see this, we're being sold a view that Christmas is primarily about us. That it's about me. It's about how I feel. About how hot chocolate makes me feel, or about how Christmas lights should make me feel. And I love Christmas, and I love all the feels, but we do need to be discerning to an underlying message that tells us it's about me and whether my life, as I hoped it would be, is measuring up. Friends, this It's an anti-Christmas message. This is not Christmas. Two weeks ago, we started our Advent series, which we've called The Call of Christmas. Looking at these characters, what the first Christmas looked like. As we've stepped into an Advent season, Advent, it means to celebrate the arrival of the King. That's exactly what we try to do every year at this time as a church. To try to slow some things down a little bit. To focus on the arrival of the King. To try to help us separate ourselves from cultural messages 
to get a sense that this season really is about the birth of Jesus and all that that story has for us. Consider Zechariah, an old priest, and his wife Elizabeth. They're longing for a child, and they're longing for a Messiah. Zechariah reminds us, in fact, that we're called to prepare. This is the heart of the Advent season for us. We start there because it will, we want to take four weeks to prepare for the king. God prepared Israel for decades and decades and centuries and millennia for the king. And we want to take the season to prepare our hearts and our souls to worship. And this season calls us to be reminded of Mary, a young girl with hopes and dreams who is betrothed. And in the midst of her life, Gabriel shows her, shows her and reveals to her that God has a plan for her, a beautiful and a painful plan that would cost her everything and yet grant her more than she could imagine. The call of Mary, which we leaned into last week, reminds us that nothing is impossible with God. And if he can ask all of that from Mary, what might he ask of you and me? How What might we give our bodies as a living sacrifice to the King? And this season reminds us of Joseph. This morning we'll be leaning into his story and the call of Christmas. So if you turn with me in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and we'll start in. From the birth of Jesus Christ, took now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. As we step into Matthew, I want to give you a little bit of background information that should help you a little. First is this, that this is Matthew writing. Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, one of the twelve disciples and a former tax collector. In fact, as you get into chapter 9 in Matthew, he'll share his own conversion story of coming to Christ. But have you ever thought of Matthew being a tax collector? See, we tend to point out Zacchaeus as being the tax collector, this, this bad guy who stole from people to get rich. And yet this is exactly who Matthew was. Called and redeemed. There have to be some crazier stories and written somewhere that will testify to an eternity all the weird encounters this guy had to come across having stole from people and now telling them about Jesus. I wish we knew more of that story. But of the four Gospel writers, Matthew is the most Jewish. And by that I mean, he clearly wrote his gospel to a Jewish audience. He used more Jewish references, talked about Jewish culture, made Jewish arguments, referred to Jewish metaphors. This whole book actually is making a case to his Jewish audience that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So if you're wondering why or how that plays into Joseph's story... It's a great time to wonder because I'm about to tell you. God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. So if you're holding a Bible open or if you want to scroll up in your app a little, you might notice that the first 17 verses of the book of Matthew testify to Joseph's genealogy. 
Now you might have not have ever considered why that's there or why that's important, but what it does is it testifies that Joseph is a descendant of David. Which to a Jewish person means that he's in succession to the Davidic throne. So that in this story of Jesus' birth, Joseph is far more than a willing fiancé. No, actually, Joseph is theologically necessary. Something I can't say for all of us. He's theologically necessary. Joseph is God's keeping his promise. And God exercising his sovereignty. And this would have mattered to a Jewish audience. And it should matter to us. Why? Because God keeps His promises. Even the promises He makes that take thousands of years to fulfill, and even those that require 42 generations of your family. From Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian captivity, and then back to Joseph. 42 years of God's redemptive work, His plan to rescue people from their sin, played out generation to generation to generation until we get to Joseph. And it's really easy and impressive for us to consider this 10,000 foot view. This view that we get to be privy of as we read the Bible. To see that God was in control. That God was working all of this out. But for a moment, I want us to consider the 5 foot 8 inch view. That's my guess, by the way. The view that Joseph inhabited. The view he experienced of what God was placing in front of him. Because friends, as we walk, we are never privileged to the 10,000 foot view. I wish we were. It would make things so much easier. I get the six foot view. And you get however tall you are. So let's consider Joseph's perspective. Culturally considered, he would have been 16 to 18 years old. He would have been considered a man in his culture. I've known enough junior high school juniors to think otherwise. But here's something to consider. If you're with us and you're young, do you believe God can use you? Because here in this text is some of the most difficult callings God gives. And He gives them to a junior high-aged girl and a high school-aged boy. Why do we think it's old people that should make the biggest differences? You're a teenager amongst us. God has a plan. Desires to use you. Now for your sake and your parents' sake, it won't include a virgin birth. But He's got a plan. And there's something here for you to chew on that God calls these young people into His story that they were the main characters in this plan so far. And Joseph was betrothed. He found a young girl who wanted to pursue her. He convinced her family to let him marry her, probably paid some sort of a a bride price, something that would guarantee that he could take care of her. He walked all that through. And he's betrothed to her. He has hopes, he has dreams, he has 
plans. No doubt he could see all of that before him. And when Mary comes and says she's going to go stay with her cousin, he probably thinks she's going to go help out Elizabeth. It's a great purity plan, by the way, when you're betrothed. Yeah, good, you move. Go somewhere far away. And four months later, when she shows up, very pregnant, and it's not his, Scriptures don't record their conversation. doesn't tell us how Mary told him or what his response was. I can't fathom how that goes down. I can't even imagine what it looked like for Mary to tell her parents, but that's another story. But the text does pick up in time for us to see Joseph struggling with this tension. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This is more than he can handle. It's more than he wants. Now, if you want to step into Joseph's story, you'd find a, a really good Jewish man. A man who desires to honor God. A man who desires to be righteous according to the law. Other versions say, ESV says he's just. Others call him righteous. The Bible doesn't take those words lightly. This is a man who's trying to be righteous. And consider this for a moment. That Joseph has a decision to make. First, he could expose Mary as being unfaithful to him. He could refuse to marry her. And in doing so, he could publicly divorce her. Now, that may seem cold, but I need you to know up front, that's actually what the law would demand him to do. That would be the culturally most acceptable practice of his day. Walk away. Keep your honor. Keep your dignity. Let her be disgraced. Let her fall on all of it. Realistically, she could have been condemned by Levitical law for being pregnant out of wedlock, even to the point of being stoned. Friends who bend towards legalism, chew on that one for a moment. That righteousness in this passage looks like zero compassion. Righteousness in this moment looks like obedience to the law, but crushing people. Consider that for a moment. This is God's will, and it isn't always simple, and it isn't always clean. According to the Mosaic law, the religious people, this would have been Joseph's best option, his only option. Follow the law. Maintain your righteousness. After all, set your Bible aside. Isn't this what you would tell your kids to do? I've often wondered what Joseph's accountability partner would have said. Recognizing that's a common or a, a cultural construct of our day. But there's no way his accountability partner goes for this. And yet, that's his option. Or, and way more controversially, Joseph could marry her. 
He could extend grace to her. He could love her. And by choosing this path, Joseph would bring incredible shame upon himself and upon his entire family. For Joseph to marry her would be the equivalent of admitting that the baby was his. It'd be asking for everyone who lives around you, all of your mom's friends, all of your dad's friends, everyone you see in the grocery store are going to believe you did it. And while in our culture, that may be considered culturally acceptable, maybe even culturally celebrated, it wasn't that way in the first century. Think Fiddler in the Roof. Imagine how Tevi would have responded if one of his doctors or one of his daughters would have been pregnant. To choose this would bring shame upon himself, possibly bringing judgment upon himself. And that's not even to get to this fact. It would break Levitical law. He has to become unrighteous in order to follow through on this. So he's got two plans. Do I divorce her? That's the righteous thing to do. Do I marry her? That's the unrighteous thing to do. There's literally no easy way out for Joseph. And so according to the text, because he's a just man, because he's a righteous man, because he's unwilling to put her to shame, he constructs a third option. He wants to quietly divorce her. That's to not choose the righteous or the unrighteous. See, that's the, he wants to honor her. By the way, in that culture, if you want to quietly divorce somebody, all it took for a man to divorce his wife was to write it on a piece of paper and hand it to her in the presence of two witnesses. Two people have to see you give her this piece of paper. You'd be divorced. You could walk away from it. Probably you would move or she would move, but because you'd want to keep your family together. But that's all that would have been required of him. His honor would be intact. Her honor could be intact. I can't imagine how difficult this decision is. And as the text continues in verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. We saw that depicted in the short clip. An angel appears to him in a dream. Now this is where I think Joseph gets gypped. Zechariah got an angel. Mary got an angel. Zechariah gets a sign. The moment the angel steps into the room and tells him he'll be quiet, he walks out going, it's evident to him that what had happened was real and was true. Mary got an angel and she got a sign. All of a sudden she was Sick at weird smells. All of a sudden, life just wasn't as simple as it was, and she's throwing up in the mornings, and she can't figure out why. Her mom knows. Some of her older friends know and can tell her, hey, I know what's going on. She gets a sign. She gets to step into this. But Joseph, who could have walked away easier than any of them, 
because he didn't get a discernible sign, gets a dream about an angel. Now, I've got to be careful with this. We have to be careful about this, about reading 21st century thinking into a first century book. Because in the first century in Israel, receiving dreams were often seen as divine messages. Matthew actually gives you another instance of this in Matthew 27, 19. When Pilate's wife receives a dream about the angel of the Lord speaking to her, she also follows through on this. So, whether reading it or hearing it, the first century Jew would have been impressed by this dream. They would have been way more impressed by his obedience to it. They would have been amazed at this angel speaking in his dream. And this is what the angel says. Joseph, son of David. Now, Obviously, the video, the clip we showed, added some other stuff. But he does so because he's trying to help get impressed into you that the son of David would have meant something to Joseph. It would have connected him to his heritage. It would have bought him brought him around to an understanding of the family lineage, that God was doing something here. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The angel whispers, yells, I don't know the tone of voice, take her as your wife. Take her as your wife. Step into the hardship. Step into the difficulty. Step into the illegal. Marry her. Even though it will cost you your reputation. Even though it will bring shame on you. Even though you won't be allowed, and and don't miss this, you won't be allowed to go into the temple for a while. Maybe ever. Like publicly, this was going to radically shift his relationship to God as other people looked at him. God says, marry her. She will have a son and his name will be Jesus. And he will save the people from their sins. Then the angel reminds him of what Isaiah the prophet had prophesied 700 years before, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You'll remember what Joseph does in verse 24. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew confirms his obedience, that he marries to her. That God spoke to him and he was obedient immediately. He welcomes her into his home. By the way, don't miss that because of what's gone on, they would have foregone the traditional wedding celebration where their families would have gathered and celebrated all this due to the pregnancy. This cost them far more than we'll get. 
But the text confirms that she remains a virgin until the birth of Jesus. Now Matthew will later add that Jesus had four brothers and a number of sisters. So it confirms a virgin birth, but not perpetual virginity, as some churches might teach. Friends, consider for a moment what Christmas meant to Joseph. To this young man betrothed to this young lady, only to find her pregnant. This first Christmas brought Joseph pain. It brought him shame. It brought him listening to whispers behind his back for the rest of his life. And let me let me remind you of this very important fact. This Christmas was not about suffering. It was not about Joseph. It was not about Mary. It was about the one who would come to suffer on our behalf. It was about the one who would redeem all of their shortcomings. It was about the one who would come to pay the penalty that our sin deserved. It was about the Messiah. Like Mary, when we lean into the story, Joseph was given a difficult calling. They suffered as a part of a story that brought Christ glory and literally brought him into the world. Mary and Joseph suffered through it faithfully. And how did they do it? Because they had a great hope. I love the part of the clip we showed earlier when Joseph at the very end mouths, Messiah. He gets it. Messiah. That all these things, all that was going around him, all the things he didn't get, didn't understand, didn't understand why God was putting on his plate, didn't understand why God would allow him to walk through, didn't understand why God would allow him to see this season of his life, didn't understand the situations and circumstances, didn't get any of it, wasn't privileged to the 10,000 foot view, but puts it together in a word. Messiah. Last week we saw in the story of Mary, the call of Christmas, that we would make ourselves available to tell His story, even in our struggles, even in our pain. Because even in my 42 short and or long years, I can testify to you the number of hallmark Christmases I've had amounts to zero. Christmas tends to be one of the most stressful, painful times in our, in our lives. It tends to be a challenging, difficult season. And I think when we lean into the call of Christmas, we are to be reminded that it's not about our pain or our losses or our suffering. It's about the Redeemer who comes to save us. To save us and to redeem us from our pain, our loss, and our suffering. When I was a boy, every year we would decorate our Christmas tree, and about halfway through the process and listening to Christmas music, Silent Night would come on. Every year, without question, about six words in, it would make my mom cry. Sometimes uncontrollably. And I would ask her, Mom, why? Any boy would ask his mom when he sees her mom crying. And she would talk about how it was her dad's favorite song and how when he would sing it, it would make him cry. And so she cries now remembering him crying. 
You know what happens to me when I hear the song Silent Night? I cry. Every time. I cry remembering my mom crying. Remembering her dad crying. And in that moment, in the pain of recognizing that I get to walk through another Christmas without my mom, another Christmas without my mom giving my children gifts or hugging them, I'm reminded that Christmas is not about that pain. It's about the redemption of that pain. That Christmas is about the one who came to resolve all of that for me, to redeem it all for me, to fill me in a way that my mom, frankly, never could have or would have. That Christmas is a redemption of all of those things. Friends, I hope you see how countercultural this first Christmas was to our view of Christmas. Because this morning as we listen to Joseph's story, I want you to see the call of Christmas. That Joseph's story calls us to trust him. Even when we can't see the 10,000 foot view. Even when we don't know how or if it will all work out. Even when it all hurts more than you can imagine. We're not privileged with the 10,000 foot view. And yet, we trust Him. We trust the One who was born on that day to come to redeem us, to save us. And we trust the fact that God the Father is sitting on His throne. And that God the Father, in His glorious plan, sent His Son to be born as a human, to walk amongst us, to live a human life, and to die a death that would pay for all of our sins, that He might be glorified. God is on His throne. And the resurrected, crucified Son is at His right hand. There is nothing that you can or will endure this life that will challenge either of those facts. Now I get, from a six-foot view, it shakes a lot. From a six-foot view, it hurts really, really bad some days. But from a 10,000 foot perspective, I want you to know it's rock solid. Mary walked through everything that God put on her plate because she had a great hope. Joseph walked through everything that God put on his plate. Did they suffer? Yes. Did they struggle? Absolutely. But they walk through it because they have a great hope. I want to close with an uncommon Christmas passage. Romans 8, 18 through 25 says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing 
for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. Friends, this is Christmas. This is Advent. Waiting for it in patience. The King came. And the King is coming back. That you and I are subjected to futility. We will groan. It'll hurt. But we hope. Just like Mary and Joseph, we have a great hope. The angel revealed to Joseph a great truth. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew starts with this, that God is coming to be with us. And the very last verse in the book of Matthew, Matthew 28.20, And I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. You're not grieving alone. You're not hurting alone. You're not suffering alone. Jesus is walking with you. Why? Because He was born as a baby into a world that was broken. And He lived a perfect life and He died a death on our behalf so that we could be redeemed. Friends, as we step into this Christmas season as our calendar marks down, Christmas is not supposed to be perfect. It's not supposed to be pretty. It's not supposed to be simple. It's not supposed to be easy. It's about celebrating the Redeemer. The One who would take all of our junk all of our trials, struggles, and what have you, and redeem all of it for His glory. Let me pray for us. Great Father, I thank You for this Christmas story. One that's not simple, it's not easy, it's not the one Hallmark paints for me. Father, there are so many days I wish it was the Hallmark version. And yet, Father, that would be so shallow. You have something so much deeper and so much richer than better hot chocolate and better Christmas lights. You have something better for me than a new bike or a, a present that I've always wanted. Father, You gave us Your Son. You gave us Your Son. A man who suffered and died on our behalf. You gave us Your Son. So Father, as we step into the real side of Christmas, where families are dysfunctional, where the season hurts, where things fall short, 
and don't meet our expectations. We give you thanks for a Redeemer. That we don't have to find our identity in any of those things. But that we could fix and focus our eyes on Jesus. The author and the perfecter of our faith. Father, He would be our great hope. Father, this Advent season, thank You for the reminder, the call home to look to Your Son, to trust Him, and to put all of our hope in Him. It's in His name we pray. Amen.